0: Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Today we're joined by Dan Johnson, the CEO and co-founder of Jurasearch, Chicago-based software company. So Dan, first of all, welcome uh, to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks, Marcus. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in Jurasearch and and also what that software platform does.
1: Yes, I'm a retired attorney. I never had the privilege that you have had, Marcus, to litigate in a lot of jury trials. But I always loved software and realized there might be an opportunity to share some software with the litigation bar. I used to have a data company, so we were pitching litigators the idea that, hey, you can look up all sorts of things about jurors. What do you guys think about that? For voir dire. And the feedback was the data's nice. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's wrong. But boy, that software is cool. We really don't have an interface when there's a, certainly when there's a bunch of people working on a case at the same time, we don't have a way that everybody can log in and share their impressions. And, you know, I like John Doe and I really don't like Sally Struthers, but my colleague does. So we need to talk about it. And we've got background research getting piped in, but we don't have a way to, integrate that with everything else that's happening. So why don't you guys work on the software and forget about the data? So we took that advice, dumped all the data and exclusively work on the best, what we like to think of as the best software platform for managing all the often frantic communications around jury selection in one intuitive place.
0: And so, let me ask you the question. When I first heard about juror search, I thought that you know most of the most experienced trial attorneys tend to be more senior, and the folks who are more senior tend to be more more resistant as a group to innovation and to software. Uh, strategies. In other words, uh, I, I certainly remember in my days as an AUSA, a lot of our jury uh, selection was done on a notepad with you know notes scribbled and sent to one another. H- how have you found the reality of introducing trial attorneys to this platform to be? In other words, do you get a lot of resistance? Do people say, you know, I don't really need this. I just need my gut feeling and uh, and a notepad uh, to handle jury selection. What what's been the the reception you've you've received from the marketplace.
1: You're right, there is a generational thing. Of people around our age, so, you know, Gen X, and younger, we're screen first. Uh, people older than us tend to be paper first and then they'll move over to the screen sometimes. And so people that are screen first find it a little shocking that very sophisticated litigators when it's jury selection time, we'll pull out a stack of post-its and six different color highlighters and a big old cardboard with a chart written on it, right? With like four rows and a bunch of columns where they will scribble notes down to try to keep track of their impressions of each juror. And that's how it is for a lot of very sophisticated teams when it comes to jury selection. And so, Most of our clients find us to say, I've been looking for something like this. There's got to be a better way to manage the process. I don't want AI or machine learning. I don't want you to tell me who to pick. I can make my own decisions. I just want it to be all organized so that if I've got a written jury questionnaire, I'm not shuffling through those every time I start questioning another juror to find, you know, page five, I highlighted questions, you know, the answer to question 16 and i'm not scribbling my notes on the margins of the jury cards which you know happens a lot of times and the challenge when that occurs is you forget something or you don't have all of the relevant notes or materials or research at your fingertips when you've got to make a peremptory strike decision so sometimes the you know the lead attorney might be a little bit more seasoned and we'll let the second handle the screen and so the second will do all the data entry will keep track of everything. And when the season one, who wants to build a rapport with the jury and is making eye contact? And just like, you know, if you are writing notes, typically you wanna scribble that note down fast because you're trying to build rapport and make as much eye contact as possible. And so whether you're using a pen and paper or a, a tablet or a laptop, typically the attorney wants to be zeroed in on the jurors as much as you can. That's where that second or the third really comes in handy to keep track of everything, write it down on a legal pad or type it into the the platform so that all those notes are available to the lead attorney to make his or her decision when it comes time to making the call.
0: And in kind of this day and age when a lot of people have essentially virtual lives, how much of uh, the calling of social media platforms, et cetera, do you see attorneys engage in? In other words, how much background checking do people do in, in most of the juries that you've seen, jury selection processes that you've seen?
1: Yeah, quite a bit. It's tougher in federal court where they tend not to give as much time. State court tends to be more uh, inclusive of a more vigorous voir dire process. But as as long as there's more than an hour or two there you know there are firms that exclusively do this and they have people at the ready that when those names and addresses are first distributed they start looking up people's social media profiles because discovering evidence of bias that would make it close to impossible or extremely difficult for a juror to be impartial that's important and not every juror is Always hundred percent forthcoming on their background or biases or perspectives,
0: and how do you bring that in in other words if you if you 've got a, a panel and you know that this one juror said let's say you're a prosecutor and they said very uh, sort of anti government have anti government sentiments you know how do you see attorneys actually bring that up or bring that in do they do sidebars do they Ask general questions and then use the answers to uh, to try to disqualify that particular person if they say things that are inconsistent with what you've found on their um, on their virtual you know in their virtual
1: lives. I've seen it mostly helpful for determining their peremptory strikes, and that they want to know something about a juror less to bring it up to them and more to understand who they'd like to use among their peremptories. They might, uh, if you're on the defense, say they're a Blue Lives Matter person, right? Or they're, you know, just sort of um, QAnon or whatever it is, right? But if you kind of have discovered this, that they're posting it publicly, right? You're not like unearthing a secret. You might then, sometimes they'll ask sort of the hand raiser questions. You know, anybody here had heard of QAnon or, you know, anybody, you know, Pro, you know, did any of the George Floyd protests or anyone think that the police or the government can't be fair under any circumstances for some members of our society? And then have those general, open-ended questions, knowing that you'd like to get your target to talk about it, so you can get them out for cause rather than using one of your peremptories. Does your platform assist
0: in doing that background investigation? Is it so? Is it a place where you park the information? How does your platform really? process that
1: yeah it's a great question we're essentially a bespoke uh google sheets or a very uh, very custom-built shared platform for the team and any vendors anywhere around the world and so we don't do scraping of social media any of the automatic products out there i found Aren't that great? It really does take a human to review posts or you know profiles to find the relevant nuggets of information. There just aren't, at least in two thousand twenty-two, I haven't discovered any really good programs where you can just sort of plug it in and it'll spit out things they found that are relevant. There are, however, lots of people that are skilled at this that tend to use our platform to work with their clients you know, the litigators just say, you've given us the names previously, you know, they, they do it without us too, right? They'll just end up emailing a whole bunch of PDFs around. And then is that fire hose of information for the litigator in the courtroom to try to sift through to find the important stuff. So, you know, frantically checking your phone or trying to filter through the emails, or maybe it's a text chain or it's whispers in the courtroom. So that communications issue is what we saw. But the fun part is it does open up access to lots of the vendors out there that do do this sort of social media background research for litigators. And it becomes a lot easier to hire these folks to do it because you're on the same platform and you can get their results in a more organized way. You know, one of the
0: things that different litigators obviously have very different approaches and one of the things I was curious about is someone and as you said you you may not have tried a lot of cases yourself but you've certainly been a lot of, around a lot of trials and seen a lot of strategies i, I remember as a, a prosecutor some folks had uh the view that they would never want anyone who is big into science fiction on their uh, panel because they're more likely to sort of believe uh, things that may not be based in fact but require a lot of imagination. In other words, they're they're more likely to maybe believe a defense argument that that is sort of a ma- requires a lot of imagination. And likewise, some some uh, colleagues of of mine had a thing about like your the chin. If your chin was tilted more than ninety percent up at them when they're asking questions, and if the, in other words, if a juror is giving like kind of the Kind of a what we can consider a skeptical look at them. That's another little indicator that they use to to try to decide when to exercise their peremptory challenges. Let's go through a couple different types. Obviously, we have prosecutors, defense attorneys, we have civil litigators, plaintiffs' attorneys, and defense attorneys. Are there certain characteristics or questions that you've seen, let's say, defense attorneys use to try to figure out, okay, I want to get rid of these people who are going to be against my position i'm going to exercise my peremptory challenges have you seen any any questions that that defense counsel let's say in the criminal context tend to use and then we can switch over to the civil context
1: yeah no it is interesting i think i do work with a lot of trial consultants and so i get to sort of hear from them as i'm getting to know them what they find to be most valuable or impactful a lot of times certainly in the criminal case Um, Respect for authority is an important parameter uh, or skepticism of authority. And so whether you're kind of a a rule follower generally uh, or whether you, you know, sort of have contempt and disdain for those that break the rules often, you know, intentionally uh, is uh, often a good filter for whether, you know, the government or the defense might want that juror uh, to be impaneled. And how about on the civil side? Uh,
0: and, and again, I'm sure different attorneys have very different personal sort of pra- practices in this regard. But let's say plaintiffs attorneys, how how what what kind of characteristics have you found To be useful to look for in terms of identifying a juror who is likely to be sort of dispositionally uh, in your corner as a plaintiff's attorney
1: yeah it's uh you know it's funny there's a debate around teachers sometimes plaintiffs feel like they love teachers because they care about the little guy And uh, some plaintiffs' attorneys will tell me, "I'll never, I'll never impanel a teacher, right? They are, they're into discipline, right? They, they don't like it. They feel like we're, you know, doing something wrong, or we're being greedy, or we're we're breaking the rules somehow." I think uh, the sort of antipathy towards large institutions or big business, or the sense that you know things are corrupt or rigged against the little guy, is often you know you know a pretty powerful indicator as to whether somebody's going to be comfortable landing on certainly something like punitive damages
0: and I'm going to guess that you've seen some situations where you and the jury consultant and the attorneys were very confident that you had the right person on the jury, and, and it turned out that you guys were wrong. I certainly have had that happen, or vice versa. Can you, without necessarily attributing any names to this or any case case numbers, but have you had that happen? Have you seen that where you guys just everyone thought, "Oh, this is a great juror for us." They, you know, they they're really answering all the questions the right way. And then it turned out you were, you were dead wrong or conversely where you thought, Oh, this is darn it. We didn't, we didn't want this person on the jury. You know, we thought for sure the other side would strike them and they ended up being your person, and, and, and really uh, you know, being a very good juror for you. Have you, can you think of any instances where that happened?
1: I've heard of those stories and I've heard the stories where, uh, because I tend to, you know, set people up on their software and then unless they talk to me about their case, right, I don't get to see what's happening or, or what they're asking. But I, I find it so interesting that I like to hear about what their strategies are or, or how they'd like to use it. But once they're in the case, I don't get to see anything. But a lot of times I'll hear that what they're really worried about is the sort of juror with the agenda and that the, somebody that wants to be in that box for a reason. And so will present as, you know, disinterested, totally impartial, because they're looking to either help the plaintiff or help the defense. And so a lot of the jury selection strategy revolves around deselection rather than selection, where that they're combing for and looking for are those few that can torpedo the whole thing. Right, so and those few that are with an agenda but will sometimes lie in order to get on that jury and do what that juror feels is the right and just thing, and so that's where the background research can help. Uh, they don't need to bring it up; they'll just use one of their peremptories and let the um, you know the juror with an agenda go. But that is often what I hear is one of the biggest fears and one of the values of the peremptory strike regime is the ability for each side to eliminate those that they believe won't be impartial. So you end up with a far more impartial jury. Turning to
0: jury consultants, I I know when I left the government and and went into private practice, that's the first time I ever had any contact with jury consultants. And I'm guessing that you've uh, seen different personalities, different approaches that work better than others how helpful are jury consultants really in terms of helping a trial team pick the right jury? And, and then also what, what are the characteristics of the really good ones? And I guess, conversely the the characteristics of the, of the ones that may not be so good. In other words, let's start with sort of how helpful are they really? And I know this is a loaded question given what you do, but I'll ask it anyway.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, from my perspective, I certainly think they add a lot of value, again, not litigating myself, only because like most experts, they're obsessed with it, right? They are, it's all they do. That's all they think about. And I think from having some sense of the psychology of group decision-making and some notion of how you're asking a juror to end up with your line of reasoning and what that means for someone's personality that they will in fact, end up saying, yes, you know, on the defense side, this plaintiff has suffered atrociously bad injuries. And I'm willing to say you're not going to be financially compensated, even though it tugs at my heartstrings to see you and your parents in the courtroom, every day. And that takes a personality that's willing to do that. And conversely, people that are comfortable with, you know, pick the number, 10 million or $100 million judgment, uh, I'm willing to say you will, in fact, pay that. And so I think it's helpful, even just on the conversation and initial consultation side, to have that framing of who are the type of people that you think are most likely to land on your argument? Um, Because, you know, most people aren't, you know, we're trained as attorneys to think very rationally. And we're trained to apply the law to a set of facts. But 99% of the people don't have that training. So I do think it is helpful to be exposed to people that do this for a living and think about it all the time. And a lot of the tips are, you know, maybe they feel a little commonsensical, but um I think they're they've got some resonance. And so what what was interesting to me is there's there's a whole range of services that they offer, right? And so they can get into you know crafting your questions or crafting your survey, assuming you get one, sitting with you at council table. And being with you the whole time. But I don't think it's necessary, you know, certainly in every case to have that scope of partnership on a trial. But I'd encourage anybody, if you've got any budget at all, to have a conversation or two because there are insights that they bring just doing this all the time that I think you'll get something out of the conversation.
0: You know, I think the point you just make, Dan, about how. Different jury consultants offer different ra- a range of, of 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 alternatives of services, and that you really have to choose the ones you you want or think are going to be most helpful. I, anecdotally, I mean, for me, the first civil trial I did was a, a fairly large one down in in Miami State Court, and I like I said never had a jury con or, or the jury consultant. Although I'd done you know dozens of trials. And we did mock trials and we had questions for the jurors. What arguments do they like and not like? And I count me a skeptic at that point still about this whole process. It felt very sort of artificial. And we bring all these civilians in that would get paid a little bit of money just to sort of sit in this fake jury, do these truncated arguments and then weigh in on them. And then at the actual trial, we had the jury consultant sit with us, work with us, Give our, her her feedback on jurors, and as you know, you're, usually your usually time is very short, and you're kind of frantic, uh, which is no doubt one of the benefits of your software, which which helps sort of become a little less frantic, a little more organized. But then you have an additional person, not just your trial team, not just paralegals. You have an additional person telling you, "Oh, I really like this juror," and the other people say, "No, oh, I really don't like that juror." And then ultimately, there is a decider that has to make a decision about who we're going to try to exercise our peremptories against or who do you want to insulate. How often do you see the jury consultants sort of being the primary mover there where they really make the decision? And how often do you see it where the lawyer, the lead lawyer, um, in other words, how much deference have you seen lawyers pay to jury consultants where there might be a difference of opinion about whether a particular juror is good or bad?
1: That's a great question. I, I think there's certainly a range. I think most trial consultants feel that they present the strategy to the litigator, but ultimately, I have I've really seen many trial consultants sort of talk about it like, this was my pick, but rather, I felt good about this pick, but it's always the, the litigator's decision. I'm sure there are some litigators that are happy to defer, but you know, litigators and deference don't always... Um, you know, run together, and so, you know, I do. Uh, I I think it is more the case that the jury consultant is a trusted advisor that often will win the day with the litigator because they usually know what they're doing, but sometimes their gut calls, and those are. It's ultimately the litigator's decision. So I think I you know there is a range. Uh, but I do think, I, at least I've heard more that when the trial consultant's more involved from the beginning, helping to shape the narrative, testing some of the narrative themes, um, and you know, crafting some of the questions, reviewing the answers as they come in, um, it makes for a more collaborative relationship when it comes time to pick in those jurors.
0: And in the federal system, typically, the uh, attorneys play less of a role in terms of jury selection in the sense that they, especially on the criminal side, often judges will want to have the questions given to them. They'll, the judges will ask the questions and you can ask like one or two follow-ups. Uh, the One of the big ch- differences I noticed in this Miami trial is that basically you could kind of, there were very few parameters or limits around what you could do in terms of talking to the jury. Um, what have you seen from attorneys that you really like? like? What type of personality types have you seen that do really well with jurors? And, and what personality types have you seen that, that sort of br- rub the jurors the wrong way?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I do. There's a big difference in federal and state court. And federal court is typically very truncated and uh, often judge centric process. And state courts they vary widely in how they run jury selection. And sometimes judges still like to run a very tight ship uh, at the risk of jurors with an agenda making it on without really a vigorous process of vetting. And sometimes they really let the attorneys, you know, battle it out to end up with only the jury pool that's been uh, vetted in the sense that anyone with any objections has been removed. Um, and so it is a fine line because. The attorney is always trying to appear, you know, friendly and trusted uh, and somebody that the juror is rooting for as a, you know, honest person that's doing the right thing, while at the same time, aggressively getting rid of people that are going to be adverse to the client's interests. And so I do think it's helpful to always go in with more than one person so that if somebody else needs to stand up and ask some tough questions, they can. Uh, and then the lead attorney can sort of remain the friendlier one. Um, uh, I think it's it's just really hard. And I get it on the uh on the prosecutor or the public defender side, there's just not the resources to do it with somebody else. It's just really a challenge to do it by yourself. Yeah, you know, one of the um
0: uh one of the things that, that I think really sort of jumped out at me, at least in context of uh, of doing that first trial on, on, on the state side, is, you know, how important it is to have that initial reaction of the jury as a pool, because they're all – it's kind of them against, in their mind, their team. And if you start attacking any of their people, you know, their members of their team, even if the juror is totally providing inappropriate answers or or seems totally disinterested in the process, they, they hold it against you. And, I, and one of the things we noticed is that, you know, one of the sides took a very sort of le- lecturing approach to jury selection. It really seemed to go down very badly with the jurors, whereas whereas the other side... Try to be more friendly and sort of really engage them and 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 talk. And one of the, and I'm curious to get your feedback on this. One of the things I think was important. It's something that we always were taught in the U.S. Attorney's Office is to be a fair, a fair person, so that the jury looks at you as a as someone they can rely on. In other words, if 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 I'm the prosecutor and I ask a question about you know defendants, and some guy says something like you know, well, I think criminals should go to jail. You know, you could then just say, well, okay, this is a good guy for us, so I'm going to not ask any more questions. Or you can hold them to the, their feet to the fire a little bit and make sure that they're going to be fair to both sides. In other words, they're not just, hey, I think this, the government's right always, so therefore we should put people in jail. So we really, we were always trained to both because it's the right thing to do, it, but also because when jurors are watching you, they say, oh, this guy is really fair to both sides. He asks questions that may get an answer that are bad for him or that may be good for him. And I put those in quotes. And I, I think on that Sybil case, we we didn't see that. We saw the other side really asking questions about th- trying to elicit jurors who are going to be bene- more beneficial to their perspective and then leaving all, all questions that might seem to be indicative of a lack of fairness uh, that would go against the other side on the, on, you know, as if they, they weren't even, those things weren't even said. And so we, I think that, that was one observation I had that really carried in well from the government days. Um, curious if we get your perception on that.
1: Yeah. You know, I, there's something noble about a jury whenever it's uh, impaneled and it's really an American experiment. I always like it when there's sort of a, a a bit of a speech about it, you know, when the, the gratitude for their service is expressed sincerely and the gravity of the task before them as citizens in our republic. Uh, I do think it's ennobling and I do, I would encourage litigators to spend a little time, you know, thanking them uh, on behalf of, you know, a unique American government institution. Um, I do think that tends to lead to quote better behavior by citizens serving as jurors when they're sort of called to it. And most of, it's interesting, right? I, I get into a lot of the studies and you know the judges that work on this stuff, because I have a court product too. And typically pre-getting summoned, people are not high on jury service, right? Avoid it, get out of it. But once people do it, their perspective of jury service skyrockets. Most people have an excellent experience at jury service if they actually do a trial. And they're kind of proud of themselves for participating. There are always exceptions. But generally, the sort of a baseline view of jury duty is pretty low before it starts, and it goes way high after it happens. And I think that speaks well of you know juries in general.
0: You know, we're in the Post COVID, or at least one hopes, post COVID um, phase, and I'm I'm wondering whether that you've seen that that has any impact on jury trials. We often hear about the vanishing jury trial. How you know there were once so many jury trials, and now there's so few. And obviously, big law firms, really, the people with the most jury trial experience tend to be people who came to law firms from the government, let's say, um, as opposed to trial experience gained while at a large law firm because companies rationally try to avoid trials whenever possible. What are your thoughts on 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 sort of the post-COVID reality of of jury selection and jury trials?
1: Yeah, I think um I mean typically pre-COVID right about 150,000 jury trials a year, you know, 5,000 federal, the rest state. That plummeted during the pandemic to a trickle. Uh now it's largely back And there's a backlog I read or heard somebody speak about, about a two-year-ish backlog. And so the pace of jury trials is picking up. The volume is larger. You know, a lot of settlements, you know, a lot of people will, um, you know, a lot lot of cases settle. This happens to me a lot where, you know, people are all ready to go on the platform uh, and the first 10 jurors come in and then that's when they reach the settlement. And so, um, you know, sometimes it takes having a jury actually getting impaneled before the parties are ready to reach an agreement that neither one of them really likes, but they get there. But I, I think that the the ba- there is a backlog and the uh, the judges that are struggling with it are very cognizant of it. And I think are looking for any efficiencies um, to improve the process so that more of these cases can get heard.
0: You know, prior to our our conversation, now uh, we had talked about the ABA uh, model rules on technological or technology competence. How, how does how do they factor into what you do, what you see?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, there's a you know uh, a general model rule that attorneys are to be uh, in, improve their competence of technology, right? That we you know typewriters aren't really You know, appropriate any longer. And so, just as our ability to write using word processing software is really standard these days, I think in other aspects of litigation, jury selection being one of them, using modern tools to ensure that notes aren't lost, all information is readily available, any background research can be integrated along with courtroom impressions. I think that's typically a a good move for litigators to do and take advantage of the technological advances that are broadly available.
0: You know, you, uh, you, and we don't need to get into all the details uh, of the background of this particular case. But I saw on your website you mentioned a uh, a case uh, in which a judge, um, months after the case was over, sua sponte, and without any motion from the other side, essentially found that there were Batson violations in in a in a federal case. I happen to think know the case um, and and know sort of the circumstances there, which are very difficult uh, for the people involved. Um, because again, in this case, the judge came out many months after the trial was over and said, hey, I've been thinking about this for a while. Government, tell me why you struck this juror um, or these jurors. Uh, how How is your platform helpful in terms of being able to Not avoid those situations, and I don't think they come up that often. But to to address situations where, whatever the context later, there's an allegation of bias or some other misconduct relating to uh, the jury selection.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Uh, and it's a refresher to listeners that might not be as familiar. Supreme Court case law uh, has made clear that peremptory challenges are permitted for any reason except on the basis of race or gender. And so it's broadly considered Batson challenges after the the case uh, where Batson was the um, defendant who became the plaintiff and brought this allegation, uh, which the Supreme Court ultimately affirmed that the prosecutor uh, was striking all African-American jurors uh, and that became impermissible. The challenge, like a lot of you know implicit bias in our society, uh, is how to demonstrate that or show that and on the government side or on the civil side right you can bring a batson challenge on a civil case too uh, to ensure that every peremptory strike there is a batson compliant reason to justify the strike and uh meaning race or gender neutral and so the reason for exercising the peremptory strike should be documented And available in case there is a, what, you know, often called a Batson challenge, and which can come months later and is sometimes called a Batson reconstruction hearing, where the party that is facing a Batson challenge, meaning their strikes were impermissibly motivated by racial or gender bias, uh, you need to show, no, the potential juror happened to be a female, you know, or male, or happened to be a particular racial group. But that's not why we chose to strike that juror. It's because he or she expressed this and said that and had this or that in the background. And thus, we didn't feel he or she could be an impartial juror. The challenge, of course, in this case that you mentioned, but it can happen anywhere, is that in a fast-paced, jury selection, finding those scribbled notes as to why a peremptory challenge was exercised for a particular juror can be a problem. And the nice part about software is that it's all saved, it's organized, you know, you have to put it in there. And so your notes as to why you chose to exercise a peremptory strike are kept in a really easy way. So even if in the middle of trial, You've got your notes, you've got your motivation, you've got your reason. And for a training exercise, you know, it's a good practice for, you know, new litigators and new associates to be, you know, refreshed and, and remember, hey, when you want to strike somebody, go through and make sure you know that there is, in fact, a legitimate reason to exercise that strike. Because if you don't have one, maybe you shouldn't exercise that strike, right? That maybe that's implicit bias that's manifesting. So it's a good gut check to make sure everybody's, you know, sort of staying on the straight and narrow. But those bats and reconstruction hearings can be um, chilling because, you know, in this case, they come up sui they could come up months later. So it's good practice to have a very vigorous, you know, system of recording All of the notes that are your reasons for each of these uh, uh, peremptory strikes.
0: And so maybe ending where where we might have otherwise begun, you know, Dan, how did you get into this line of work? I mean, as I understand it, you're a University of Chicago Law School graduate. Sorry to see that you did not get into Northwestern. That must be the reason you went to University of Chicago. No, obviously, it great. great <laughs> You know, you don't
1: interrupt the wound.
0: A uh, a very very fine institution that I actually had the privilege of teaching a class at for for a period of time. And a lot of my colleagues and oh, former colleagues thing. teach. Yeah, great 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 school. Um was oh, great. Uh, but uh, how did you go from from the from going to the University of Chicago Law School, graduating, and then how did you get to where you are now doing uh, juror-focused software work?
1: Yeah, I mean, long and winding road, but I really, I love software. I just love the idea that you can hear what people are struggling with, hear their workflow challenges, and you can create something. That if it solves, you know, if, if you know, you and I talking like, you know, the, I, I just don't have a way to do this. And if I can solve that for you, well, the same thing's going to work for a hundred other people or a thousand other people that are in the same shoes. So I just love that whole idea that you solve a problem for somebody and it's totally replicable uh, for a thousand new people. And uh, it was really a trial consultant in Chicago. Uh, you know, I was pitching this idea of data, and you know, you can look up anything about somebody these days, which you can. Uh, and he said, "Yeah, I don't know if I trust all that. You know, what magazines he subscribed to, or you know, maybe uh, you know there was a, a survey, and you know, people ex- somebody extrapolates, and I'm sure they're very smart people that he's probably against, you know, whatever climate change, or you know, maybe he's for abortion rights or whatever it is. So, uh, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. Uh, but we just as an industry, we don't really have a good tool for that. And when he shared that, um, you know, very you know, high dollar impactful trials are using post-its, I thought, well, that's a niche I should try to pursue. And, you know, uh, have you ever seen
0: prosecutors and, and or defense attorneys sort of in the federal defenders let's say or state defenders i'll take out of the the mix are are well-heeled private practitioners but have you seen prosecutors for example use jury consultants um you know and then i'll ask you about how they could afford it but uh, but have you seen that happen
1: I, most trial consultants are uh, very open to pro bono working with um the government right it's sort of everybody recognizes that there's you know, they're resource constrained. And most trial consultants, you know, they're always onboarding new people. And so whether it's, uh, you know, because they happen to believe it, you know, maybe they're sort of more on defense oriented people, or they're more prosecution oriented people, and they just kind of want to help. But if, you know, some of your folks on the government side are listening, I think they should ask, you know, I've been pleasantly surprised. Because, you know, I've got government clients, we're free to government agencies for the same reason, right? They're resource constrained. And so um, a lot of times, one, one state's attorney told me, I like the software, it's good, you know, it's a lot better than what we're doing. But what I really like is the idea that there's an expert on the other side, that when I'm facing a tough call, I want to be able to ask a question. And that expert, you know, they're seeing everything in real time, too. And I think, you know, it can be it might be counterintuitive that these, you know, consultants that can have a great hourly rate, right, when it's a big case, are open and willing to do it uh, for next to nothing, you know, either on the training side or to help, you know, their their junior associate get a little experience. Uh, but I've been pleasantly surprised by the receptivity to help out.
0: That's fascinating. I, I never even uh, thought of that as a, as in, in, in government service. That's, that's really uh, an interesting approach to take. Well, Dan, I, I want to thank you for taking the time with, uh, with us and for being on the White Collar Brief, Briefly podcast and, and sharing your thoughts on a topic that, that, again, I think a lot of folks who are, are lawyers and maybe even litigators but don't do a lot of jury trials maybe don't think about as much as they should. And I know I've learned a lot today. So really want to thank you uh, for joining us.
1: Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. And, um, uh, you know, good to see another fellow University of Chicago Law School guy.
0: You got it. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly of Perkins Coie Minipod, copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.